after the great exodus happens, we remain. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus, Exodus, Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 11 is where we're going to pick it up today, and then we will move into chapter 12 as well. So if you've got physical Bibles or devices, go ahead and turn there or swipe there. You can follow along on the screen when we get there. Um, in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the preacher, author of Ecclesiastes, was driving home the point of everything under the sun is vanity. Everything is futile. It's like a futile. It's like a vapor that we, we can see, and we try and grab it, and then we just, it slips through our fingers. And some of the ways that he was demonstrating the futility or the vanity that we see all around us is he looked at nature and he said look at the sun the sun comes up and the sun goes down and it happens every single day he says what has been is what will be and part of what he's demonstrating in this is he's saying look at everything around us it is suggesting that everything contains this hint of vanity. The same things happen over and over. In our lives today, we think, oh, I'm doing something new. But Solomon would say, that's already been done. Over and over and over. And I think we get a little glimpse of the other side of the coin today, when he is looking at things and he's saying, Every, like all of this repetition, it's just vain repetition, but now he's going to look at things at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's going to give us a little hope, a little glimmer of hope, how all of this vain repetition doesn't need to be vain, how it can be redeemed. And so, part of what we're going to look at today is this idea that what you are doing today is training for what you're going to do tomorrow. So we're all creating ruts, whether they're good or bad. So if you have kids, the way that your kids respond to you today are creating patterns that they then can follow tomorrow. The way that you might work out, if you're lazy in your workout, you're creating a pattern for that. If you are intense in your workout, you're creating a pattern for that as well. Even, even like what we're doing right now, the way that you listen to a sermon, you are creating patterns for how you might listen to a sermon in the future. The way that we spend our time, the things that we eat, there's this reality that we do what we know. We do the things that we have done in the past. And the reality is, much of life we live kind of on autopilot. Right? We oftentimes don't maybe think real intently about what we do. We just are kind of guided by routine or by feelings or whatever it might be. And so this demonstrates the importance of us making decisions and doing things in the right way. That we are rehearsing for tomorrow in good ruts, in good ways today. So Solomon's going to tell us a little bit about the good ruts that we can follow, as well as what happens when we are misguided in the ruts that we create. So chapter 11, verse 7, let's pick it up there. I'm going to read the whole text that we're looking at today. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity." Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, 
and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors are on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So very clearly here at the end, we've got kind of this movement towards death. Now, I'll be honest, I've been excited to preach these verses since we started the series, knowing that these were on the horizon, that we're going to be coming to these verses. And, and I think many people read these verses, and many people are like, what is going on here, first of all? Like, what is actually being said here? But other people hear this, this movement towards death, and, and they kind of look at these verses as kind of this, uh, just this morbid portrayal of what we're going through. But I think in these verses there's a ton of grace and a ton of hope in, in what Solomon is saying. So here's what we're going to focus today. We're going to focus on two main things. The idea of rejoicing and the idea of remembering. Rejoicing and remembering. So I want to start with this idea of rejoicing. So the preacher begins with a call to both the old and the young to rejoice. Now, there are many things in life that bring us pleasure. I, if we would just stop and kind of assess our lives, I think we could say there are many things that we enjoy. And Solomon, he says here, light is sweet. Light is sweet. And I think there's many things we could identify in life that are sweet as well. Like sitting in our houses on a rainy day, listening to the rain hit the roof is a soothing feeling for some. Or maybe on a hot summer day, having a cold beverage that we can drink. Maybe more, it's more appropriate on a cool fall day, having a warm drink that we can enjoy. The sound of a baby cooing. With that feeling that you get after a really intense workout, that it's done and you've accomplished it. Sitting around a campfire, on a cool night, feeling the warmth of the fire, sharing stories with friends. These are examples that maybe for some of you, you would say, this is a sweet, delightful, pleasurable experience. And I think life is full of these joys. They're all over the place. And Solomon is saying, don't miss them. Enjoy the many gifts of grace that God gives to you. In verse 8, he says, speaking to old people, if you live many years, enjoy them all. Enjoy all of your years. Don't resent them. Enjoy all of your years. Because the reality is, as we get older, our bodies begin to break down. Uh, the control that we thought we had when we were younger, we realize we don't have as much control. And so our control wanes and there's a tendency as we get older to focus on all that isn't right to find all those things that we don't like to complain about things that don't go the way that we want them to go Casey and I talk about this every so often uh, because we, we've noticed in in people who've kind of gone through aging and being elderly and then dying, like, there's this tendency to complain about things. And so we'll kind of, every once in a while, have this conversation and, and press each other, like, how are we fighting becoming a curmudgeon? Like, how are we pushing against that reality? Because there is this tendency in all of us. As we get older, we're weaker, we look at life, it's not going maybe the way that we want it to, to just complain, and to just say, I wish things were different. So the preacher says, 
That's not how it should be. That joy should be normative for the old people, but he also says for the young as well. In verse 9 he says, For the youth, let your heart be cheerful. Now, youth are generally strong, right? They are full of energy, and when they look at their lives, they could say there are endless possibilities about the future. That they have, in many ways, few cares about the world, at least relative to an adult. And I think this is probably because many family structures have broken down uh, over the last number of decades that kids do have a lot more cares uh, in this world and, and are faced with things earlier on in life, for sure, but that was not God's intention. Now, the preacher, preacher here, he's not naive to this, this encouragement to enjoy life, okay? He's saying enjoy life. When you're young, when you're old, enjoy life. But he realizes that there's another part of life, and so he provides caution for his listeners. He says, the days of darkness will be many. And I think Solomon has learned this. He's lived most of his life, I think he's nearing the end of his life, a life that's been full of loss for him, full of grief, and, and I think for us too, even if we're in our 20s, in our 30s, we can still, still acknowledge this reality. Life is full of loss, it's full of grief, it's full of injustice and disappointment. We, we all know this to some extent, and the reality is some of you are feeling this really deeply right now. You see it, you feel it, you feel like it, you're, you're shrouded by it. Life is hard. There is much darkness that we feel and we know in our lives. The preacher also warns youth, says that the ways of your heart may not be as they seem. He's saying, enjoy your youth, but don't do it recklessly. Don't do it recklessly, for God will judge the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. You are going to have to answer for the decisions that you make, for the things that you do. It's not as though we can, we can live life in such a way that there are no consequences. God, God, or Solomon is saying, God will judge you for the decisions that you make when you are young. So use your strength for good things. And, and in this dynamic of the preacher focusing on joy and focusing on darkness, I, I just love the honesty that he displays here for the reader. Humanity, all of us, we have no shortage of things that induce joy. If we're honest, if we stop. May, maybe, just at first glance, we would say, no, life sucks, like there's all these things that go wrong for me. But if we stop, and we think of the many ways that we have been given good gifts. They are all over our lives. We've been given a plethora of good things, but the preacher does not ignore the obvious here either. Amidst the joy, there are struggles. There, there's horror that we walk through. Darkness. There is darkness. Now, biblically, darkness symbolizes evil. If you go back to Genesis 1, and you look at how darkness is depicted there, it is the one thing in the creation narrative that God does not deem as good. Everything else he creates, he looks at it and says, it is good. But darkness does not get that same conclusion. Darkness is not good. Because darkness depicts sin. It is chaos, is what we find in darkness. Now, when we think about darkness, and specifically in the Bible, the greatest image that we can get of darkness is Jesus hanging on the cross. So at this moment, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, Jesus is literally becoming sin. He's literally becoming sin. And so it's not surprising that we read in Mark chapter 15, 33, that as Jesus is being crucified, hanging on the cross in the middle of the day, that darkness descends upon him. 
There's no other reason for it to be dark at that time of day. But darkness consumes Jesus. It consumes the land. Now, Jesus is being swallowed in darkness. We see that, right? But he's doing that for humanity's joy. Which doesn't make a lot of sense at first glance, right? Jesus is being killed. He's being consumed in darkness. But he is doing that for the express purpose that you and I would be filled with joy throughout our lives. As Solomon says, light is sweet. Light is sweet. And the ultimate fulfillment of that statement is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. That's what we read in the New Testament. Jesus is the light of the world. It says also in the New Testament that in Jesus there is no darkness whatsoever. No darkness at all. And there's also this idea that we get that as Jesus goes into the darkness, as he is consumed by darkness on the cross, that that is not the end of the story. That ultimately, he is going to drive out darkness. That though that darkness consumes him on the cross, there is more to the story. And that darkness, though it consumes him there, cannot keep him. It cannot keep him in the grave. Ultimately, Jesus is going to drive out darkness. And this, this is really instructive for us in the way that we live our lives as well. Because amidst the sinful, dark reality that all of us live in today, in this world, that is our worldly existence, right? There is sin all around us. There are dark things everywhere. We don't need to look far at all. But in the midst of the darkness, Christians do not need to be a people who are marked by despair. Because we can know that darkness does not get the final word. That that is not where things end at all. When we look at the cross, what we should see there is the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. Okay? And yet, what comes out of the greatest injustice is the greatest joy the world has ever seen. So, if you think about this in our own lives, when we walk through dark times, our tendency is to lament. And that's not all bad. It is good to weep. It is good to cry. It is good to lament, but with hope. Never weep without hope. Because the reality is, if God could bring about the greatest good out of the greatest evil, what does that say about the darkness that we walk through? God has promised to take the horrors of our lives, to take the darkness that we walk through and to drive it out, to overcome, to turn it for our good. And so, we can be a people full of joy because we are a people filled with hope. So, in the midst of good, in the midst of, ga- uh, of bad, because of Jesus, because we're looking at him, because we're trusting him, we can have confidence, we can have hope, we can be full of joy. And, and really, this, is, I think, is displayed really powerfully in the New Testament because there's really crazy statements made, like in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. It says there, rejoice always. That's a ridiculous statement, Right? Who reads that and says, oh yeah, that's my life? Nobody, right? That's ridiculous. And yet, this is the instruction of the New Testament. Rejoice always. Not just when circumstances are good. Rejoice always. Always there means always. It literally means always. When we live for good temporal circumstances. Putting our hope in those circumstances, it is impossible for us to persist in joy. Impossible for us to persist in joy. Because we are believing the lie that joy is found in something other than God. 
and it's not. Joy is directly connected to God. The New Testament talks about how joy is actually a fruit of believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus produces joy. Joy is the result of putting our hope in Jesus and of being in his presence. So Psalm 1611 says this really helpfully. It says there, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. So it's not found in your favorite meal. I mean, enjoy that, because that's a gift from God. But don't put all your hope in that, because one, you're going to finish the meal, and then your joy will fade. Or two, you're going to gorge yourself on that meal, and you're going to make yourself sick, and then you're going to resent that meal, right? So enjoy the good gifts, but let that good gift point you back to the giver, because that is where joy is found. So a few questions for us to kind of press this onto, onto ourselves. Are you a person who is persistently joyful? Are you a person who is persistently joyful? And I I love being able to assess myself because I I always look at myself in the best light. And so I'm like, oh yeah, that's me. But, all right, here's what you should do this week. You should ask your roommates. You should ask your spouse. You should ask your coworkers. You should ask your kids because they won't fake the funk. Ask kids. They'll, they'll give it to you straight. Are you somebody who is persistently joyful? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us will say, no. There are times when I am not. And then we have to ask ourselves, why? Why not? Why are we not persisting in joy? And the reason why is because we are hoping in something that cannot give us what we are longing for. We are hoping in something that is lesser than Jesus. So the call for us over and over again is to believe the gospel. That's where Solomon is getting us to. Believe the gospel. And then in verse 10, He says, put away pain from your body. I love this verse because one thing that I really like to do is I like to stretch. I stretch a lot. So when I read this verse, I'm like, ah, it's telling me to stretch a lot. Put away pain from your body as you're getting older. One of the most important things, stretch a lot. Okay, that's me kind of reading that in just so you know. But it also says, remove vexation from your heart. So with this it's called remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. Basically what Solomon is saying is make the most of your life. Make the most of your life. Get rid of those things. Get out of those ruts that will distract you from Jesus. That anger you, that frustrate you, that create stress and anxiety in your lives. So, the way that we put away pain from our body and we remove vexation from our heart, I think is spelled out really helpfully in the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. It says there, Do not be anxious about anything. So as you hear that, you should think, this is how we're going to remove vexation. Okay, so vexation is basically anxiety. Okay? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The way that we remove vexation from our heart goes back to what we just were talking about, being in God's presence, being near to him, casting your cares upon God, because he can handle your cares. We can't handle our cares in and of ourselves. We need help from someone, something outside of us, and that is Jesus. And not only that, not not only can Jesus handle 
our cares, but he's promised to redeem the worst of our realities. Okay, so we need to see very clearly here that we are called to enjoy life. We are called to enjoy life. I hope you guys have felt pushed and poked and prodded about this throughout the series because it's come up numerous times throughout Ecclesiastes. We are called to enjoy life, to be mindful of the laughter that we hear in children, to be thankful for those friends or our spouse or our kids, to be grateful for that good book that we've been able to enjoy, for sleep, for our work, for food that we can enjoy. And I mean, I prayed this for you guys throughout the series, but, but especially this last week as well, just that you guys would hear this crystal clear call to enjoy life and see this distinct connection between your joy and God himself. And, and it's not surprising where we go from here, where Solomon's going to go in what he talks about here. He's, he's making this robust call to enjoy life, that we should be people who are filled with joy. And then he goes to chapter 12, verse 1, and he says there, remember also your creator. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. If you want to sit in God's presence, if you want to be filled with joy when you're old, saying start doing it when you're young. Create those ruts in your life. Remember your creator. I said I was excited to preach these verses. Uh, it's these next verses that I find strangely comforting. Maybe it's because in our culture there's this effort to, to hide weakness. Like if we've got a shortcoming or a downfall, we, we try and put something in front of that so that others won't see it. Maybe it's this desire to kind of silence chatter about death within our broader culture. But I love the fact here that Solomon does not mince words. He says, and I think this is indicative of a man who's experienced some of the things that he's about to describe. He says the end of his life, at the end of his life, that there are days coming where you will find no pleasure and you will wish for them to end. Now we hear this. And we think doom and gloom. What's wrong with this man? But this is a man who's lived with great pleasure, pursuing great pleasure throughout his life, had everything that he wanted in many regards. And here he is at the end of his life, and he sees that the pursuit of pleasure only leaves someone in a place where they wish it would all end. I just wish to die. So he's going he's gonna to draw some really vivid pictures for us here in these next number of verses. He says in verse 2 that life is going to get darker. Life is going to get harder. It's going to sober us as we get older. And he says in old age, in verse 3, that the keepers of the house, talking about one's legs, begin to shake and to tremble. They're not as sturdy as they used to be when we were young and vibrant. He says strong men are bent. And this emphasizes how age oftentimes causes people to hunch over as they get older and as they weaken. He talks about teeth falling out. And so people must move from eating steak to eating pudding. He says grinders cease because they are few. The teeth fall out, and they are no we're no longer able to grind that good food. He says the windows are dimmed, and he's speaking about eyesight here, eyesight that becomes blurry, and for some people, completely fails in old age. He says the doors on the street are shut, and that the grinding is low. He's talking here about hearing fading, the gift of hearing really good things, beautiful things that we no longer 
have that. Daughters of song are brought low. The voice weakens as well. There's this idea as you get old that you lose your hearing, right? So you can't hear the, the laughter of children. You, you can't hear that beautiful song and appreciate it in the way that you once did. And yet, despite this reality that you can't hear things the way that you would like to hear them, Solomon says, this compromised hearing doesn't prohibit a feeble songbird from waking up an elderly person in the middle of the night and prohibiting them from getting a good night of sleep. It doesn't make sense, right? You're not supposed to be able to hear things. And yet, your hearing fades and you hear the littlest of sounds and it keeps you up for the remainder of the night. And as the elderly increase in frailty, the world around them moves faster and faster and the strength and power of what looms over them creates fear. It says also that the almond tree blossoms. When, when an almond tree blossoms, it has all these white blossoms that come on the outside of it. So he's talking about here one's hair becoming gray. As a grasshopper was once nimble and energetic and jumped everywhere that it went, at the end of its life, it is a shell of what it used to be. It is just dragging itself along. And he's saying as we get older, we do the same thing. Where we used to be able to run, we are now limping, dragging our legs, unable to do what we used to do and to be what we used to be. He says desire fails, and this is talking about sexual desire. Solomon can hear the faint chants of the mourners who are coming to lament his death. He understands that he is about to be broken, to be snapped, to return to where he came from, to return to dust. He feels this, and he doesn't love it at all. The perspective that Solomon has at this point in his life is vastly different from the perspective of some 29-year-old who's just been blessed with their second baby and a job promotion. That person looks at life and the, the possibilities in life seem endless. It seems like there's all this life that I have yet to live, all these great opportunities that lay in front of me, all this good in life is really convincing. But Solomon, from where he sits, says, where has it gone? Where did it go? The excitement of all those grand circumstances, those great pursuits that he had chased after when he was young and found himself empty, he has found again that those circumstances are empty. They are not reliable. And he says, plain as day, life sucks. Life sucks. Death is knocking at the door. And I think we find here the reason why Solomon is saying, remember also your creator. Remember also your creator. There will be many reasons at the end of life as he demonstrates, but not just then, throughout life as well, that will cause us to lament life, that will cause us to doubt the goodness of God, to even doubt the existence of God at times as well. When we yearn for a baby and miscarriage comes, and it happens repeatedly, we feel deeply the darkness of this world. When we lose a job that we loved and we, we wonder wh where are we going to go from here? Well, we've searched for a job for many months 
and we just can't find what we're looking for. When we encounter physical pain in our lives or marital strife, and not just marital strife, but marital strife that then leads to marital brokenness. Or when we walk through these ongoing sin struggles in our lives, we feel deeply the darkness of this world. And Solomon is saying, be aware of it. This is our reality. Don't try and deny it. Don't try and hide it. Acknowledge it. And yet, in the midst of this, we have also heard this call, rejoice in all of life. It's such a great picture of what we're called to in this life. Life sucks, but enjoy it. The reality is, when we feel this deep pain, we can move from God, where are you, to not even asking that question anymore. And just assuming, kind of in the back of our minds, God doesn't care. He's not really there for me. And I think part of the warning that Solomon is giving us here is that as we get older, there will be days in which we will lack any strength to pursue God. We will lack the will to pursue God. And I think this is a great picture of the gospel because in those days, we feel very acutely the gospel is not about us pursuing God. It's about Him pursuing us, chasing us, giving us everything that we need. And that's the beauty of the gospel. But Solomon is saying, those doubts about God's goodness, about God's existence, if you don't want to go down that path when you're old, don't go down that path when you are young. Actively fight against disbelief by remembering who God is and what he has done. Remember. Remember. And there is ample biblical precedent for this idea of remembering. Remembering was an instrumental part of Israel's life. So they would, they would throw feasts throughout the year, and those feasts were marking really significant events in the life of Israel to remind people, this is what God has done. They would have ceremonies throughout the year to remind themselves, this is what God has done. They would be called to make sacrifices to remind themselves, this is who God is. So all these ceremonies and feasts and sacrifices were about remembering God's promises to them, remembering God's covenant with them, remembering God's salvation for them. Now, the greatest salvation event in the Old Testament is the Exodus. So the Exodus is recorded in the book of Exodus. And in that story, we find God's people enslaved. They're in physical slavery in Egypt. And his people, they don't, they don't have any hope at all. And so they just cry out to God, save us. And God in his mercy comes to his people and he saves them. He miraculously delivers them. It doesn't make any sense the way he delivers them, but he overruns the Egyptian army and the whole nation and he delivers his people out of that nation. And we read in Exodus chapter 13, as they reflect back on that, it says, Remember this day, in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So Israel was to remember annually how God delivered his people, that they would remember God's goodness that they would remember God's strength. And, and we could go to many, many places throughout the Old Testament where these, there's these examples of God saying, do this thing so that you remember what I have done for you. 
even hundreds of years later, written in, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 77, verse 11. And this is actually being written specifically about the Exodus. It says there, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. There is this call throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, but there is this call to remember God's salvation. And it's pervasive. Remember God. Remember his salvation. Remember how he has delivered you. And we find it repeatedly in the New Testament as well, but there's a distinct shift that happens in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they're continually looking back to the Exodus as the primary salvation event in the Old Testament. But that event in the Old Testament is intended to point to a greater salvation event in the New Testament, which is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's the gospel. And this is what we're called to remember now. So in the Old Testament, we've got this physical deliverance of God's people from slavery. This points forward to a deliverance, an exodus for God's people from spiritual slavery, okay? God is exodusing his people out of spiritual slavery to sin. That's what Jesus is doing through his life, death, and resurrection. He is doing or accomplishing a better exodus in his life. And so this, for us who are on the other side of the cross, who are New Testament people, this is what we are called to remember to remember who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on the cross for us. This is what we're called to remember and to tell our sons and daughters. Don't forget this. This is who God is. These are the works that he has done for us to save us. This is what we throw parties for, to remember how God has generously and kindly saved his people when we did not deserve it. He has saved us from spiritual slavery. And we are called to remember this kindness, to make it the essence of who we are as God's people. And there are some really good reminders in the New Testament. One we find in 1 Corinthians 15. It says there, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, now I would remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. I love what Paul does here. Because what Paul is doing is he's saying, I'm reminding you of something that I have preached to you. So we know that the church in Corinth, they have heard the gospel before, right? He's saying, I have preached this to you, now I'm reminding you of it. But it's not just that he's preached it to them, He's also saying, you've received this message. You've believed this message. So not only have I preached it to you, but you have received it and believed it. But not only that, it's what you're standing in right now. So Paul knows. He's preached this to them. They've received it. They believed it. He knows they're standing in it right now. And what does he tell them to do? Remember it. Remember the gospel. Rehearse this in your minds over and over. When you gather together, rehearse the gospel. You need to be reminded of this over and over. And so we as a church, when we make this call to be a gospel-centered church, this is why. Because we don't need to advance in, in all this intricate theology. So that's not a bad thing. But first and foremost, where we start, where we end, is the gospel. And we never want to move beyond this. We never want to say we've left that in the background. We've moved beyond the gospel. Never. This is the center of the faith. We are called to believe it over and over and over. This is the best news in the world. That's why Paul tells Timothy as well in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Timothy, someone who is being, he's a leader in churches. He's telling him as he leads other people, remind people of Jesus. Remind them of the fact he has risen from the dead. 
as Christians, we are called to remember. To remember the gospel. To remember Jesus. It's the best news that we'll ever hear. Many, many other people have said this, but what we need most frequently is to be reminded, not to be informed. We don't need more information. We need to be reminded of the most important information that there is. We need to be reminded rather than informed. And it's funny then how this correlates to rejoicing, right? We're called to remember, and this is what compels our rejoicing as well. So here, a few things of, uh, just a couple points of gospel application as we close here. First of all, so we're called to rejoice and to remember. You notice that these are the imperatives here. In these verses, these are the imperatives. Rejoice and remember. I love how passive this is. When we think about salvation, what are we called to do? Remember God's salvation and rejoice in it. This this is such good news. God is the one who saves. He does it. This should be liberating for us. When you walk out of here today, the call in your life is to remember what God has done and to rejoice in it. That's how you are saved. Remember what God has done. Believe in it. Rejoice in that. There is nothing else you need to do to go and save yourself. God does that. It's such good news. And so, if you're a non-Christian, I would want you to hear this really clearly. There's no other religion like this. Okay? Every other religion in the world says you walk out these doors and you go do these five or ten things, and you try and do them really well, and maybe your God will look upon you, and you'll pass the test. No assurance. It's horrific. It's a horrific reality. Christianity is the only religion. This is the best news in the world, where God saves sinners. Sinners don't have to try and work their way to God. God comes to sinners. This is why the gospel is the best news in the world. We could never climb that ladder. There's no ladder high enough to get us to God. He must condescend. He must come to us and save us. It's liberating. It's great news. So, gospel application, first of all, it's important to rejoice in life because it reflects a life of faith. Salvation is a gift. It's not something that's earned. If you believe that salvation is a gift, that it's not something that you deserve and you earned, joy ensues. We are saved by grace through faith. When we, are, when we view life and spirituality or religion as something that we are saved by works, it will invoke fear and worry, and it will cause our lives to be marked by guilt and shame. And pride on days when we think we're doing really well. Our lives will be marked by joy when we understand the gospel. We do not save ourselves. We are saved by Jesus. Secondly, we remember God because he has first remembered us. So there is this imperative to remember God. But the basis of this, the foundation of this, is that God has first remembered us. And not just remembered us, but he's a God who remembers us and then promises not to remember our sins. It's amazing. It's amazing. So there's this call in the Christian life to remember who God is, what he's done. So looking back, our culture would say, what's next? What's the new fad? In our faith, we do not want to be looking for the next fad. Okay? Our faith wants to, should be looking back to something that has been proven, that is sturdy, that is solid, that has maintained throughout generations. So don't look for the next great book. Look back at Jesus. Hope in him. Reflect on the gospel. And, and I would just encourage you guys, read your Bibles. Read your Bibles so that th- this is where God reveals himself 
to us two things. Read your Bible and get deeply invested in Jesus' church. Read your Bible and get deeply invested in Jesus' church. That's how we remember him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the many ways that you speak to us. You speak to us through your word, by your spirit, who lives in us, who are Christians. And there's this idea that you, you've come to us. You've rescued us. You've revealed yourself to us, reminding us of all these things that you have done in the past and you're doing right now as well. You, you're not a God who just rescued us, but you keep us as well. And God, this ongoing keeping is a reminder of the fact of why we can rejoice today. You're not a one-and-done God. You didn't just do your thing and then kick back and put your feet up. You are pursuing, keeping, loving, saving, even right now. You are remembering us. And so, God, I pray that you would drive home these realities of who you are and of what you have done. Help us to see you as the one true God as Lord of all, as we sang earlier. You are Lord of all. You alone are worthy of our praise. And so God, I pray that we wouldn't just sing that with our lips right now. We would live that with our actions and with our words as we go about this upcoming week. That we would be proactive in remembering who you are and what you've done. And the result of that will be joy. So help us, God, to be in your presence, plugged into you, remembering the greatest news in the world. In your great name I pray. Amen.